0: This is Purple Elephant, where I bring the proverbial elephant to the table in order to deconstruct ableism, prejudice and misconceptions. On today's episode, we have Holly Scott Gardiner. She is a disability activist amongst so many other things, but I wanted to let you know this episode is actually going to be split up into two parts and it's really really deep diving into everything from ableism. We talk about things, trigger warnings, such as suicide and abuse, and also her journey to accepting her blindness, even though she was born blind. As I said, this is a two-parter series, so when you get to the end, you'll have to wait for next week's episode. I really think you're going to love this episode.
1: And I light reception, that's it, but I didn't even think should I bring a cane it had never even occurred to me that I might need a cane at that point that's how deeply ingrained that not wanting a cane was.
0: Mm -hmm. Welcome to Purple Elephant Holly thank you so much for being on the show how are you today?
1: I'm doing great how are you?
0: Yeah I'm very very well I'm really excited to have you on just for the fact that I've been watching your journey from afar online and I think the audience are going to get a lot from this today so yeah without further ado for those that don't know you would you mind introducing yourself please
1: yeah I'm Holly Scott Gardner I am a blind person from the UK I'm a rehabilitation teacher though that's been a quite recent development in my life um I started blogging when I was 17. I was in sixth form at a mainstream school and I started to write a blog. And it's funny because I actually can't tell you now why I started that blog. It was so long ago, I don't know what the event was that made me think I'm gonna start a blog. But I did and it's taken lots and lots of different forms over the years. Um, I now mostly use it to write about blindness and about disability rights advocacy, which is something I engage in. Since starting my blog, I co-founded a user-led organisation which supports disabled survivors of abuse and violence. I was involved in that for a little over a year. And um, I've also since been to university and travelled fairly extensively.
0: That's amazing. You've got a very impressive portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> Although this topic of discussion isn't necessarily on what we're going to be talking about today, I just wanted to ask your thoughts on, again, because I, I follow you, but the people listening to this may, may not know of you. Why do you think it's so important to raise raise awareness of disabled survivors of abuse? Because I think there's this misconception that disabled people are not people that face abuse and you know the statistics are actually very high it's very scary how 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 bad it is and how in danger we can be especially as a disabled woman would you like to just share that
1: yeah absolutely it, it is one of those things it it's a very interesting dynamic because you find on the one hand that disabled people are infantilized, so we're very much treated like children. So people go, well, of course, you won't experience sexual abuse. Um, That that just can't happen. But that's not true at all. And as you said, disabled people are actually at higher risk of experiencing certainly sexual abuse, but also things like domestic abuse. And um, it goes as far as disabled people even being murdered by their families. So I think it's so important that we talk about this because what I've found is many disabled people will experience abuse or violence and they'll think, well, I can't come forward, nobody will believe me. Mm. And really, really sadly, that's often the case. You find there's so many situations in which law enforcement haven't believed a disabled person because, again, they hold certain bias and certain um, discriminatory opinions about disabled people. And they think, well, of course, you know, this disabled woman, wasn't raped, um, how could that possibly happen? So I think it's really vital that we talk about this. um, Firstly, so that survivors are believed, but also so that we can then stress the need for support services to actually be accessible.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I think you've hit the nail on the head with the word accessible because mm-hmm. a lot a lot in our lives, as <laughs> we we'll both know from our own experiences, the world isn't accessible to, to blind and visually impaired people. But if you add any other disability into that mix and then you talk about things like law enforcement, if, if you're deaf and need an interpreter or if you have autism and you need the support, the law enforcement's forget about you as a disabled person anyway let alone any needs and requirements you may have so accessibility right, exactly. is so important and you raising awareness of this is super important and if you don't mind I'll link the um, website below for anyone that needs yeah. to yeah. check yeah. it out. I could honestly talk to you about that all day because I'm, <laughs> I'm really impassioned by it and I know there's a lot of people out there sharing their stories and trying to support and empower disabled people to come forward and say you know it's okay it's not okay what's happened to you but it's it's okay that you want to speak up about this get the support you deserve can you explain your journey of blindness and the support you receive from friends family uh social services here in the uk and the education system
1: yeah absolutely that's um Well, that's a big question, but um, (laughs) I was born blind. My parents didn't find out until I was around eight months old. I have Leber's congenital amaurosis, which is an inherited form of um, retinal blindness. So it is a genetic condition. Both my parents are carriers, and they were not aware until I was born that they were actually carriers of this particular eye disease. So I have one older sister who is sighted. And at the point of my diagnosis, I was referred to various different services that I received as a baby, though intervention was fairly minimal. We did live out in the countryside at that point, so there aren't a lot of services there at all. I think I lived in a village which was recently described as one of the most remote villages in England. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So there wasn't a lot, but um, I did actually receive great support at the age of two, I started at a nursery school and I actually started at a nursery school for students with um, all kinds of different disabilities because through that school I could start to learn braille. So really from around two and a half I started to learn braille and I was a reader of grade one braille by the time I entered primary school. Probably not the most fluent reader at four but I was getting there and I'd really finished the braille code by the time I was six or seven, um, by which point my family had relocated to the north of England. Mm -hmm. So in school I actually received um, very comprehensive support. I had input from um, a teacher for the visually impaired who taught me braille, who taught me touch typing and other technology skills that I would need. I had support from an orientation and mobility specialist who taught me how to use a cane. I was actually recently reading through my school reports and um, reading my cane travel reports are kind of funny because I wasn't always the most cooperative or willing student, it turns out, which isn't necessarily all that surprising. So I was in mainstream school until I was 11 when I transitioned to a school for the blind. I was there from year seven to 11 at which point I made the decision to return to mainstream school. It was completely my own choice. My parents had said, by that point, we're happy for you to make these kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a it was a choice I made for various different reasons. I, I really strongly felt like I wanted to be in an environment where I was with lots more people than I could be with a school for the blind. I felt like I'd gained some valuable things from going Mm -hmm. to a school for the blind, but at that point I was ready for something new. So I went back to mainstream school and um, I didn't do very well in sixth form, mostly because I realized that actually I hadn't particularly come to terms with my blindness, which came as a huge shock to me. Because I'd been at a blind school and I thought I was doing really well, and I thought I was really confident and self-assured, certainly in my blindness, Mm -hmm. and then suddenly I was thrust back into this environment where I was the only blind person and realized that actually I wasn't at all. So I did lots and lots of soul searching. Um, I discovered going out and partying, which didn't help my grades either, (laughs) but... I eventually finished sixth form and I realized, okay, I haven't done very well. This is all a situation of my own making. So I then um, chose to go to college and I did a BTEC in sports science. And by that point, I really calmed down a lot and I started to come to terms with my blindness. Um, By that point, I was 18. I was now a writer online I was now blogging by that point and I did work a lot harder and I actually ended up doing quite well enough to get into university anyway so that was really yeah that was my education journey and it was it was quite unusual because you find that many students once they go to a school for the blind they'll either go for sixth form after mainstream school or they'll go in year seven and they won't necessarily choose to leave and go back to mainstream schools. So I chose an unconventional way of doing things. And I think that's sort of something that I've continued into adulthood, making unconventional choices. I feel like I was really lucky to get the support I did. And I shouldn't count myself as lucky because what I actually um, was given was an equal education. But that isn't what many blind people get given Mm -hmm. as you'll probably know in the UK it's it's just not what we get whereas for me I was a competent user of technology really by the age of 10 and I was a fluent braille reader and whilst I stubbornly refused to use my cane I had received cane training as a child so I'd been given so much more than many blind people have and I think more than that what I was given were really high expectations. My teacher of the visually impaired always expected me to work hard. She expected me to get myself out of certain problematic situations, particularly ones that I'd put myself in Mm -hmm. Um, and as did my cane travel instructor. one of the school reports it was funny out I read I must have been about six at the time, and he said, "Holly must learn to stop running with her cane and apparently um I ran with my cane i 'd fallen over, and he refused to help me up, which he hoped would teach me a lesson about <laughs> running. <laughs> but I think that you know not being overprotective really helped me because it made me realize that actually I had choices about my future
0: mm. do you mind if we deep dive into the um cane travel, as you were explaining that you didn't really for want of a better word, embrace using a cane uh what sounds like in in your teenage years or for at least throughout high school mm-hmm. is is there a particular reason behind that
1: yeah, I think it's a really nuanced thing, honestly, I think it started with i as a small child you 're not really going anywhere by yourself, you know when you 're six you're walking around school by yourself but you're not actually going anywhere whether you're blind or sighted so what i was doing as a child was i could walk around school without my cane we can debate whether that's safe or not but i i knew my way around i had extremely good mental mapping skills And so I'd walk places without my cane and people would praise me for doing so well and know where I was going. And I liked praise and I liked being good at things. Mm -hmm. And then when I was outside, I would hold my parents' hand. And at six, that didn't really feel very unusual because a lot of children still hold their parents' hand at six. Of course. So it felt very normal to me. And as I got older and older, I just wasn't using my cane. My parents didn't make me use my cane outside of school. Um, I definitely had some behavioral and emotional issues as a child, which stemmed a lot from bullying and exclusion, and also from my own inability to come to terms with my blindness, which unfortunately made me difficult to be around, which then contributed to other children not wanting to be around me. So I felt then a lot of shame, but I also then resisted my parents' efforts to make me use a cane. And then at the School for the Blind I attended, we actually were actively discouraged from using canes on campus. And so I then was thrust into an environment with other blind people where it was almost viewed as shameful to be using a cane. So I really internalized a lot of that shame. And I will say that my cane travel instructor at the School for the Blind did not Encourage that shame she really actually encouraged me to embrace using a cane and to go out there and try but Mm -hmm. by that point I was 14 and I had let a lot of it sink in very deeply Mm -hmm. so I think that then by that point I was very concerned about fitting in and appearing not to be blind which is crazy because I was quite happy to use braille and tools like that that show me is obviously blind but somehow using a cane felt really different and um i returned to mainstream school and on my first day of school i showed up without a cane i was 16 i showed up to school i was dropped off i got out the car i stood for a moment and i listened and i thought well i can hear the doors to the building i'm gonna head that way and hope i don't crash into anyone and that was i mean i basically have no vision i have light perception that's it but i didn't even think should I bring a cane it had never even occurred to me that I might need a cane at that point that's how deeply ingrained that not wanting a cane was
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that I didn't even think about it
0: do you think from your perspective you touched upon there about how using a cane in your school was actively discouraged do you Mm -hmm. think it was because lots and lots and lots of blind people using a cane at once would seem almost like more of a hazard? Or do you think there was underlying reasons behind why you were discouraged from using one?
1: So I think that's partly the reason. Yeah. And I I would have said, well, that must be right. But then I've been now, since then I've been in other environments where every blind person uses a cane and nobody's tripped over anyone's cane. So I've realized that actually it's it's just not a good enough reason Mm. I think it I think it is what people believe but they believe that because actually they don't see that if you really teach blind people to travel well then 50 blind people using a cane is far safer than 50 not using a cane Mm -hmm. but unfortunately that's not the perception that many people have but I also think um, there was still very much the hierarchy of sight which was promoted in that environment Because students who had more vision were certainly um, expected to guide totally blind students fairly often. Certainly, when we were out and about off campus, I'd definitely seen students who had more vision being asked to guide a blind student. Mm. So, very much there was that perception that, well, you know, more sight means you're safer. So, they can avoid the blind students and well we can't make people who have some sight use canes because they don't really need canes anyway so i think there was a lot of that going on that had been going on for far longer than we can even imagine you know since far before i started at the school
0: Mm -hmm. i feel like we're touching on the really deep topic of ableism and internalized ableism here i feel that the technology skills you've learned the Braille you've learned, and everything to help you become an independent blind person, was the level you wanted to be at academically, but when it came to accepting totally who you are as a visually impaired person and the adaptations of using a cane and how that could strive your independence further, I just feel that that in itself shows that why we have such a deep-seated issue with disability in society because you're not even at school for the blind, you're not even embracing all facets of what it is to be blind.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I do think that's changing. I do think, you know, as more blind people talk about ableism, and as more disabled people in general, and I think there are professionals in the field who are starting to recognize that who are making the changes they can, you know, within the constraints of, the environment they happen to be working in but it's absolutely um, a problem and I I think as well I was always told that I was doing very well I was academic Um, I was an articulate child I could go into a room and have conversations with adults and be far more comfortable with adults than, well than I was with other children but also than most other children were with adults and so I think the fact that I actually wasn't doing very well got overlooked because I was exceeding everyone's expectations which is sad in itself Mm. and obviously disability has now been amalgamated into the broader equality act which has benefits but also isn't the strongest piece of legislation by any stretch of the imagination so (laughs) yeah so we're still facing a legislative battle particularly as more and more things move online and we have to look at okay how do we produce legislation for digital accessibility which is a whole other problem we're facing. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you, it's very much upon us. We, we must be the advocates and it's very tiring. And I noticed this more than anything when I went to university, I realized that I was expected to do everything other university students are expected to do, which is show up to lectures, which is hand in assignments, read books, um, probably joined some extracurricular activities but I was also expected to advocate for my books to be in an accessible format. I was expected to advocate with my lecturers to make sure that I was receiving documents in a format I could read. I was expected to then take those advocacy battles higher up if the lecturer didn't then provide me with those materials. I was expected to see if I could join in with extracurricular activities, put things in place so I could join in and all these other things that I had to do and I would be so exhausted and so angry. I was really angry and bitter, honestly. And that it was not the finest time in my life. I think if you actually look at some of my advocacy work, I was getting burnt out. I was not necessarily going about things the right way, but I was quite honestly exhausted because, again, it was all on me. And I was lucky to have found a really great group of people who supported me through that. And I, I couldn't have done it without them, but so much of it was a burden placed on me and we still very much have that mentality that well you've got to go out and advocate and and we even push this as disability rights advocates ourselves we push it by going you've got to learn to advocate you've got to learn to self-advocate and we do it because we know it's true but it's also sad because it just reinforces that system
0: yeah it's such a tricky situation because there's so many layers to our advocacy as well. When I was at university, I was exactly the same, but I was also losing lots of vision and I my braille literacy skills were, were not very strong. My technology skills were basic. Uh, I didn't use a cane because I refused because I had such internalized ableism of I don't want to look blind. Mm-hmm. Um So if I don't look blind to the outside world, then they won't perceive me as blind. Yet I then expected accommodations because I couldn't access my classes without that support. And when that was put as a barrier towards me with lecturers not making things accessible, or in my case, by the time I'd already lost my sight, I would have been starting a new academic year and realizing that they would rather defer me than actually support me through that year that I ended up giving up, quite frankly, um, yeah. on my education. And I just think that's utterly disgusting that we were, we're in a place where technology was there. We were in, a, we were in a, a world where we were first world country and we should have had the access rights that should have been granted to us. But because I was seen as too much hard work and quite frankly, the disability support was the worst it wasn't even the the psychology department that I was under it was the disability support and all the barriers to access I faced from them and their exclusion and ignorance made me very very angry and give up very quickly I wonder if maybe I had the same level of tenacity as you and the the same skills I for example in braille literacy and uh, technology maybe I would have pushed it further but I think for me in my own personal journey I I knew I wasn't sh- like quick enough as a braille reader to have everything in braille and I knew that I didn't understand the concept of a screen reader and using keyboard shortcuts. I didn't know how to navigate and instead right. of the uni supporting me with that they said well you should defer and we can maybe look at it next year
1: And the thing is deferring is fine if you've got something to do in the meantime i mean if you're losing your vision you defer and then you get some really comprehensive training during that year that that's great but the problem is the training doesn't exist over here we don't have comprehensive skills training because our rehabilitation system is so fragmented i mean it really is a postcode lottery and Mm -hmm. there there aren't enough rehab professionals in the field i mean where do you go if you've lost your vision you need to learn technology there are some small local organizations which are usually charities that Mm -hmm. are teaching people and they actually many of them do a good job but they're under resourced because again they're charities Mm -hmm. and then you'll find that a lot of the teachers are then volunteers which also creates a problematic power dynamic because you usually find that you have blind volunteers teaching technology who should be being paid Absolutely. for the work they're doing but mm-hmm. aren't and it's not even the charity's fault because the charity doesn't make enough money to pay them
0: yeah.
1: but local councils don't have the funding and then there's not enough people who can there's you know there's very few ways of getting a rehabilitation teaching qualification mm-hmm. um so it, it's such a multifaceted problem i mean deferring great suggestion if if then they can signpost you to the training you need, but, but they don't. And it's, it's, as you say, they defer you because, well, okay, this is a problem we don't want to deal with right now. And then you're the one who ends up getting left behind because of it.
0: Yeah. And I, I was so determined to not defer that I said, no, I'm not doing this. And Mm -hmm. so I went, I had to advocate for myself. I had to go via Student Finance and ask for more disability support. To give you a little bit of background as people listening, because I don't want to be completely negative, I actually had a very positive experience. I lost my sight quite literally within the space of a few hours because I chose to have an operation that, that could have gone one of three ways, and one of them was it could get worse. And it's a risk I chose to take, and so there was a possibility that I could go in for this operation and, and come out with less sight than I had. But my hope was that I'd go in and and get my sight back to a level where I could use contact lenses and reprint and et cetera, et cetera. And so for me, that was that was my goal. But when I had lost my sight, I had already con- referred myself to get emotional support through the RNIB. I, at the hospital, I received fantastic support from not only my doctors, but I had a uveitis nurse, which is essentially what would be classed as an eclo now. Um, and she signposted me to the support services in my my home county where my parents were. I I got rehabilitation there. I asked every question under the sun and got amazing, amazing support. And that is the determination that I had on top of the fact that I had such great support for my postcode lottery that I was then able to say, no, I want to go back to uni and I will continue that support there. And I just, I had blinkers on. I just thought, well, if I'm getting so much amazing support here, why won't I get it in my local area? And I went to university and the rehabilitation was absolutely phenomenal I couldn't ask for better and I'm still in contact with my rehab officer now because she really did change my perspective on me being ableist to myself but also the the world of blindness and how much I could achieve with the right support and I think I'd never really seen that before and so as a blind person and kind of getting back on my feet I knew I could do it but when I then went to the university and said, but I know you should be making these things in accessible formats. I have a screen reader that if you give me things in certain formats, I can use on an iPad because I'd learned how to use voiceover on an iPad at that point. So I can do things like this. And they said, well, no, you'll need to, you'll need to have it in this format. Cause this is the only format we provide. And it was just barrier after barrier after barrier with the disability services. And I, I became so despondent that I did, I ended up, I I was actually battling for about a year and a half and then I gave up because my mental health started to really badly crumble because of that and I just feel that it all goes back to us having to be self-advocates and that's not okay because if infrastructure was in place maybe I'd had that support from the beginning of my university studies where I should have been given the equipment rather than three months into my degree I should have been given ways to use technology better that If I had have lost my sight and had these things under my belt, maybe I would have, quote unquote, succeeded at university academically in the way I wanted to. It's really strange because I don't want to put all the blame on university because I was so angry at the system that I then said, fuck you to it. And I said, well, you don't, you don't deserve my money. You don't deserve my time. And so I stopped advocating for myself in academic slash educational sense. And I think this is where it's brought me here today. Whereas if I hadn't have gone through all those hoops and up that path of being rejected and facing barriers to access, I probably wouldn't be doing what I am today. So it's a really, really strange and roundabout way of saying for me personally, my journey wasn't great, but. I'm almost grateful for it because it's allowed me to meet the people I've met. It's allowed me to live the life that I live. And it's allowed me to be a better human and a better advocate because I was visually impaired for about 10 years. And there was definitely a hierarchy of if you were visually impaired and not totally blind, you were expected to help your peers out, which is absolutely fine. But you were like, (laughs) you use a cane in your face and that's just terrible.
1: Hmm. It's very pervasive and toxic. And and it is difficult because the same as you, I think, wow, if I hadn't had to do so much fighting, would I have met these people? But then I also think if I hadn't had to do so much fighting, you know, what other things might I have done? Who else might I have met? So it's, it's so difficult, isn't it? I mean, and all you can do is look at your life and go, let's take the good from the life I have. Because if you don't, I mean... And I think this is something we talk about a lot in advocacy circles, which is you can't fight every battle because mm-hmm. if you do, you're just going to go under very early mm-hmm. on and you won't come out. You you won't actually cope because there's too many broken things that need fixing for us as individuals to do it all. We've just got to take on what we can, mm-hmm. which is why I never resent an advocate when they say, actually, you know what? I can't fight this fight anymore. I've got to focus on me or focus yeah. on something else because you just you can't do everything I mean you you just can't but it it's also true I mean it, it really a lot of it comes back to how we're viewed as disabled people and the expectations on us and as you say that well if you've got some vision or if you're perceived as somewhat non-disabled which is ridiculous but mm-hmm. is how you're very much viewed then you're a expected to reinforce the system by being almost caregivers to more disabled disabled people which is 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 terrible as well because it then says to them well you're less than that person because they can see more than you and it also says to that person who has some vision well no you don't deserve support be grateful because you can see a bit and it, it then it just is so problematic in so many ways
0: It really is. I'm really grateful that you're taking the time to sit and have this discussion with me because the wider topic of our Zoom and our episode is your blindness journey, I guess, and your independence Mm -hmm. to blindness acceptance and the support you received. But I think unless we really investigate and unpack all these layers people aren't going to understand the nuances and why it's so difficult to get the support, why it's so difficult to be a self-advocate, and why it's so difficult to just be a disabled person even in a first world country.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, it's so true.
0: Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask about your university journey because you ended up studying abroad what was the support you received but also what made you think okay I want to study abroad and how is that going to work with my support system as a visually impaired student
1: yeah so I've actually studied abroad three times now which is totally crazy (coughs) I think about it and I'm like how has this even been my life? But the the most surprising thing is the first time I studied abroad was actually before university, and it was a very unpopular move. Loads of people told me, "Oh, Holly, don't do this. Holly, you really need to rethink your decision." Because I took a year out in between finishing college and starting university, and I'd done this BTEC in sports science, and I was going to become a physiotherapist, which Uh, Anyone who knows me will be like, what? Because that didn't happen. But I was going to become a physiotherapist. And then when I was in college, I injured my knee and it wasn't a bad injury. Um, And I was in a brace for about 10 weeks and I was, you know, hopping around and I was doing fine. But what it meant was I was away from playing sports for actually about six months and by that point, my interest had just plummeted. I, I didn't want to be involved. I I was done. So I kind of thought about this and I was like, maybe I don't want to be a physio anymore. Okay, what do I want to do? And I started to learn Spanish because I met people online who speak Spanish. And I started to learn this language. And I was like, this is so cool. I love this. And I always told myself that I wanted to take a gap year after finishing school. So in my infinite wisdom, I decided that I would go to Spain as part of my gap year, and I would really learn Spanish properly. And I was actually going to apply to university to study Spanish. And I really didn't speak good Spanish at the point at which I applied to university. I'd never taken a formal Spanish class in my life, didn't have a GCSE or an A level in it. So I combed through UCAS to find universities that would even accept you without formal qualifications. And um I applied and by some miracle, I was accepted into three of my five choices, which That's amazing. Yeah, it's totally ridiculous. The only thing I can think is that I'm really good at writing personal statements convincing people that I know what I'm talking about. Like, I mean, I I just have somehow the ability to convince people that I actually have a clue, even (laughs) if I don't. And um, I was I was accepted into as i said three universities and i went for this interview at coventry and i i thought oh i hate this town this is horrible (laughs) when i I went for this interview and my my dad and i were walking around coventry and it, it was almost christmas time and all the students had gone home practically or were i guess a lot of them had left to prepare for finals and it was dead and I thought I do not want to go to uni here but then I went to this interview and the lecturer who interviewed me was so interesting and his presentation was great and he asked me all these amazing questions and I thought oh my god this is exactly where I want to be and I'd said to him in my interview well you know my Spanish isn't very good right now but I'm leaving for Spain next month to live there for five months and he went well I'll call you in June when you're done in spain and if your spanish is improved i'll know that you can learn this language and i'll give you a place so he kind of gave me yeah this provisional offer and um so how i did my first study abroad placement was i researched um language schools and there's lots and lots of organizations that offer these like language training programs for gap year students and um i emailed a whole bunch of different people and basically said I'm a blind person. I don't really know how I'm going to do this, but this is what I'd need. I'd need books in an accessible format. And that is the only thing I told them because even then my understanding of what I needed as a blind person, it was okay, but I didn't really know. And Mm -hmm. one organization got back to me and said, we've contacted all our schools. Most of them say they can't do this, but we found one in Valencia that's willing to try. And I thought, well, all right, why not? So they sent me a scanned copy of the book, and this scanned copy wasn't very accessible at all because it was a pdf and I still had to o c r it and I talked to my dad and this is where i'm really lucky to have such strong parental support and My dad actually um got the book transcribed for me into a more accessible electronic format, and he really enabled me to to go and study abroad and um I contacted LANCE, which is the organization for the blind in Spain, and I sent them an email and basically said, yeah, you know, I'm I'm blind, I probably need some, some travel training and some route (laughs) training when I move here. And they said, okay, yeah, we can help you with that. And bear in mind, at this point, I didn't really speak very much Spanish. So I pestered my dad and my dad agreed to come out with me for the first week because, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know anything. And my dad came out with me for a week and I moved into this accommodation, which um, the language school didn't own, but they had an agreement with the university which would rent out some of their accommodations. So I moved in there and my dad helped me register my guide dog with a vet. And he started to teach me the bus route to the school because I had to take a bus to get to this school and, and then walk through the center of valencia mm-hmm. and my dad had no idea really how to teach me and we argued a lot and there were a few times when i was like well you should just go home you're not <laughs> even helping me and he was like well i don't see how you're gonna do this i don't think i should let you stay here and you know there was some classic father-daughter arguments <laughs> um <clears throat> and then i received support from Lance and i learned these roots and my dad left and I was sort of thrust into this environment by myself and it was terrible and amazing all at once. Um, It was both the best and worst five months of my life. I realized actually that I was able to, you know, go and take a bus by myself. And I'd been taking a bus to and from college um, for the last year or so. But you know this was a whole different thing i was in a new country i realized that one day when i got lost in the middle of the city that actually i could get myself out of that situation i did and that was a really empowering moment for me because i'd never let myself get lost before but mm. i'd broken my phone and i needed to go to the apple store so i, I had to do it so mm-hmm. off i went exploring the city and i ended up asking someone for directions who turned out to be a police officer and it was <laughs> just like I got myself into so many crazy situations but I also realized that I was deeply unhappy and um I was deeply unhappy because I was still insecure and I was still just filled with anxiety I barely cooked for the whole time I was there I would eat like junk food and stuff because the idea of going into this communal kitchen and cooking with people possibly watching me and scrutinizing me as a blind person just it made me so anxious. And um, so I drank a lot and I spent a lot of time by myself and neither of those two things are healthy. Mm -hmm. But it really made me realize that actually something needed to change when I went to university. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So um, I I came back and I, I started university and I was I really pushed myself to be more outgoing and so I joined societies so and I joined the ice skating society purely because someone from the ice skating society asked me if I wanted to join and I thought wow what kind of person asks a blind person to join that's great like <laughs> I'm definitely joining so I did these things and um sorry this is kind of long-winded but it does all relate <laughs> then as part of my degree a study abroad placement was compulsory Mm -hmm. So as a languages student you're expected to study abroad and every student in my program went to Spain and I said well I don't want to go to Spain I want to go to Latin America because yeah I'd already been to Spain and I knew I could do it and I love Latin America, I loved the culture and the history I loved the politics. I loved everything about it. And I thought, "Why well, I want to experience that. And it never occurred to me that being blind would stop me mm-hmm. because by that point I'd studied abroad once and I was much more confident in myself. I definitely still had some issues with anxiety, which would continue to be pervasive just throughout my life. And I knew that there was a lot that needed to be done, but I also knew that it might not turn out the way I hoped, but I could do it. Mm -hmm. So I worked with various different people and um, I was denied several placements. There was a placement in Mexico that I wanted to apply to, and um, the lecturer who really held the key to that placement basically said to me, oh, well, I taught a blind student who um got robbed when they were in France, you know they were mugged twice, and so so Mexico would be far too dangerous and I thought, yeah, yeah but you're willing to let me go to Spain. What's the difference between Spain and France and yes. I believe this blind student had their stuff stolen because they let someone off someone c- offered to carry their bag or something. <clears throat> I don't quite know what happened, you know I'm hearing things through here and this was also ten years ago, yeah, I mean
0: it's just I'm- I don't, I don't mean to cut over you, but I feel like this yeah. is really important to share because blind people aren't, we're not stupid, but we are, we are human and we make yes. mistakes just like everyone else. Being, right. being robbed was probably their fault, not <laughs> because they would have handed over a bag or they weren't making themselves as safe as they could be. I've, I know I've been in a situation at least once where someone tried to use my blindness as their advantage to steal my mobile phone, but I'm too Mm. sassy and I'm too savvy. And I said, no, you're not using my phone. And I walked off. And I just think blind people aren't so delicate that we're so so precious that these things are going to happen to us just because we're blind.
1: Right I mean and even if it wasn't their fault I mean stuff happens to people you can't say like I'm sure there have been sighted students who have been mugged. On oh I, yeah I, I had
0: a friend at uni that was mugged because he yeah. some, someone actually shoved like a needle in his face and it yeah. was that worry of, you know being stabbed with a needle having potential HIV anything like that so he handed mm-hmm. over the cash that he had in his iPod Right. but and he's sighted so it's it's yeah. one of those things it's Cited these things happen to able-bodied non-disabled people all the time why is it so extra dramatic just because the person's visually impaired or blind
1: exactly and it was so frustrating for me and I fought against them but by the end of it they basically said oh well too much time has passed now you can't apply for this placement so I was really irritated but I was also lucky that um one of the lecturers on my program who was actually the person who had done my interview was um this guy who's originally from colombia and he said to me well i know we've got a place with colombia colombia is a great country I and mean, he's mm. gonna say that he's colombian <laughs> and He was like, you should go there and i thought well i've never thought about going to colombia but that would be great you know it's in latin america it's um, an amazing south american country i'm starting to read colombian literature it was my second year at that point and i thought wow that would be cool and he really helped me to work with um the study abroad department, because that placement was traditionally an engineering placement, Okay. but because they had an agreement with the university, it didn't matter that I wasn't an engineering student, you know, they had the mobility agreement, so mm-hmm. they put things in place, and I applied, and I was accepted into that placement to go to Columbia, and it was totally, totally unexpected, and the university itself didn't have a disability department at all there are very few disabled students there, there are some. I did see um, a student in a wheelchair when I was there. I didn't actually get to know them or anything, but I know there was at least one student in a wheelchair. I did see another blind person who was part of a music program but I don't know if he was a student at the university so mm-hmm. I sort of saw people on campus but all I knew when I was planning to go there was there was no disability support so what my university did and this is where my disability department at the university really stepped up and they were always great in supporting me but they did a lot of work to put support in place with the Department of International Students mm-hmm. at that university so I um, We looked at the kind of support I was receiving in England, and we looked at how we might modify it. So instead of um, having stuff electronically, we knew we couldn't guarantee that. But what I did have was a note taker, and I had a reader. And whilst I wouldn't typically want a reader as an accommodation in England, I realized that in that environment, it was actually the best... Adaptation I could have given mm-hmm. the situation because there was nowhere I was going to get stuff electronically, mm-hmm. so to have a reader worked really well. And then student finance gave me money, and I paid my readers myself when I was out there. And they were typically other university students, unlike in the UK where they're professionals. I was paying university students who spoke both English and Spanish, who you know were then employed through the international student department to be readers and note takers and do various different things for me. And it was an entirely different support package, but it really needed to be. And we we looked at that and we looked at, okay, how am I gonna travel in the city? Well, I couldn't get hold of any rehabilitation services at all, nothing. I knew there'd be buses, but I also didn't know how safe they'd be traveling as a blind person. So again, DSA funded um, my travel to and from the university from where I was living out there. And that worked really well while i was a student then again not something i needed in the uk but mm-hmm. something that i needed to be successful in this placement so i went out to columbia knowing nobody um i'd joined the facebook group for international students i i got off the plane i was met by someone from the international student department who took me to my housing where i'd be living and said well we'll um we'll see you tomorrow <coughs> And that was sort of it. And I, I had to think, okay, well, right. So I uh, <laughs> realized very quickly that I needed to figure some things out. I had no idea how I was going to go to the supermarket. I didn't know if a blind person could even get support at the supermarket. I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. But what I did know was that people out there were willing to help me. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I would probably need a lot more physical support from actual individuals than i did in england but that that was okay Mm -hmm. it really helped me break through that barrier we have where i think a lot of us feel shame like well i'm an independent blind person i don't need help but it's okay actually to say sure i do and you know i didn't feel guilty for students helping me to be readers because they were being paid for it it wasn't like i was expecting people to go out of their way Mm -hmm but what I did also do was joined a whole bunch of social groups on Facebook and I joined a WhatsApp group. And the first weekend there was a huge party that was being organized out of town, which is very common in Colombia to rent like a house in the country for a weekend and go for a huge party, Mm -hmm. which is amazing. (laughs) And I thought, all right, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, throw some money in and buy a ticket to this party. And the ticket gave you a spot on the bus. It gave you a couple of free drinks and you know the ability to spend that whole weekend in that house. And it was for, it was organized by a Colombian student for international students and some Colombians. And I went and it was great because I met so many people because most of them had never even met a blind person before.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Or the only blind people they'd seen certainly in Colombia were people begging on the streets, which is still very common. Mm -hmm. so what I did was I went and I spoke to people and I made connections and I found very very quickly that I had this huge group of people who rallied around me because I went out and I parted with them and -hmm. they realized that I was just like them and the party scene actually became a huge part of my life out there and some people will say oh that's terrible you went to study but it was amazing it
0: You're also a human being because you're studying doesn't mean you can't appreciate other parts of what it means to be abroad.
1: Right, exactly. And it it just enabled me to make friends. I didn't make any friends in any of my classes. Nobody wanted to sit next to me really. Nobody wanted to take the time to talk to me. I wouldn't have made any friends had Mm. I not gone out because the kinds of people I were in class with weren't interested in striking up a conversation with a blind person. And this is what I found in life. I thought when I went to university that just by being nerdy and interested in learning, I would make friends. And that's not how you make friends. No. And sure, some people do because they'll sit next to someone in class and they'll talk to them. But I found very quickly that whether I was in England or Columbia, no one was interested in sitting next to a blind person that doesn't actually change when you get older that doesn't particularly change from when you're in school you've got to go out there and make your friends and find them because they are out there but there no one actually just wants to take the time to see that you're sitting by yourself or very few people do and yeah. think i'll go and sit with them and talk to them so by going out to all these parties i made loads and loads of friends to the point where i'm infamous in the city and a friend of mine tells me that people still talk about me now even <laughs> though i so it's, 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 um, oh my gosh it's 3 years since i went there and 2 years since i left and i'm famous because i was this blind girl with a with a guide dog and there's about a hundred guide dogs in the whole of Columbia. So nobody had really even seen a guide dog. And, and this blind person who's going clubbing, and I have this completely mad dog that comes along with me who falls asleep, who once, once notoriously fell asleep in the middle of a club and didn't seem bothered by the situation at all. I just, I had such a, I mean, my dog's retired now, but she just was built for student life. She could go into any situation and be perfectly relaxed. And we'd go to these parties for the weekend and... um. She'd just be in her element and I became so well known and it it really made me realize that actually there were lots of people out there who were willing to take a chance mm-hmm. and who were willing to be friends with a blind person and mm-hmm. it, it was then another layer peeled back it was another layer pe- peeled back on the I'm totally undesirable in every possible way I'm never even going to make sighted friends let alone get a sighted date like it just all these things were in my head I'm never going to do it and there's absolutely still some of that still there, but making all these friends showed me that I needed to let go of some of that and that it was possible.
0: Mhm. Yeah. Your story, I think, in itself is, pardon the pun, very eye-opening, and I'm hoping <laughs> it will be because there are so many people who listen to this podcast who are non-disabled, and, and a lot of them now, I guess, know me. So I think they have a very open mind anyway. But for the few people that listen to this, that don't know me, uh, will probably stumble across this and be like, hang on, not only is she blind, but she went to a country, she didn't speak the language, she didn't know how to get around. And then she started partying. What the fuck is she doing? Yeah. And, but yeah. I, think, I think that's the beauty of it. Because one of my very favorite memories, which is one of my most kind of, epic adventures and it only happened over one weekend was when I went to a travel conference in Rotterdam and I was very fortunate that I knew the organizers because I'd been making a conscious effort to attend their socials in the UK so I knew about, at least by face and kind of Facebook message if anything kind of hit the fan I, I had some support mm-hmm. which you didn't even have but I, I yeah I was like, yeah, I'm going to Rotterdam for the weekend and I'm just going to go party. And everyone's like, what are you doing? You're blind. You're going to a different country. Mm-hmm. They don't speak your language. And I'm like, trust me, in Rotterdam, they probably speak better English than the English. They, do. they definitely will. <laughs> and, and so I was just like, no, I'm I'm doing this. And it was only because it was very funny, actually, because I, at first I was hoping that my now husband, Grant, was going to come with me. He couldn't get the time of work. And I was like okay, so I, I've got two options here. I either go by myself and and meet the friends that I've started to make in the last kind of six months sporadically, or probably three months, actually, sporadically, or I can not go and wonder what if. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things. I was like, screw this. I I want to smash those barriers of my my own box that I've created, of my little bubble of happiness, of I feel safe traveling the UK because I have a guide dog. I feel safe because I had at that point very good cane skills and mobility and orientation skills under my belt. So I was like, no, if, if anything happens, it happens because I put myself in dangerous way, not because I happen to be blind and this is sure. where the, the things are gonna come to. I literally had one of the best weekends of my entire life and I actually think that because Grant didn't come with me it was even better because I made myself go into a fucking club full of noise not being able to hear a single thing and just let my guide dog drag me around and kind of shout to the nearest person hi I'm sassy what are you drinking like just just doing that then made people think hang on okay great she's she's a cool person she's here at this club and she wants to be with everyone else. I think for me, I was very lucky because travelers are probably by character default. Some of the most open-minded people you'll ever meet. Yes,
1: absolutely. So
0: I'm so lucky that that was kind of my first major, like meeting 400 people that I'd probably never met before my entire life, mm-hmm. walking into a room full of noise and blasting music and thinking, I can't do this. I'm within about 15 minutes. I wouldn't even say 15 minutes because the organizer spotted me and was like, Hey, I'll get your drink. Hey, do you want me to introduce you to anyone? Those sorts of things. But, but just by going there and turning up and, and just, yeah, it's literally the, the case of turning up. I had some of the best experiences of my entire life and I know I've got a lot of my life left to live, but it just shows that not every blind person has the confidence and the independence that you and I have. But I think sometimes it's because of the way society puts pressure on us to stay in our bubbles. Mm -hmm. And I think you and I have had such varied lives and very, yeah, we've had troubles, but we've had very open, happy lives because we've allowed ourselves to push that, that wall, push those barriers and say, screw it. I'm going to do it because I want to do it as a human being.
1: And that's exactly what it comes down to. I think there's a lot of pressure on us to only do things when we've got the skills to do it. So it's well, you know, if you don't have good travel skills, you're not safe to go out and travel. And I just say that's a load of rubbish because you only develop good travel skills by going out and doing it you don't develop good travel skills by only traveling safely on the three routes that your mobility teacher has taught you like yeah. and i guess that's a bit of a dig at guide dogs there because there is an element of i had a dog and i definitely found so my two gdmi's in the so i had one back here where my family lived and one when i was at uni are both amazing mm-hmm. and really pushed me to just do whatever i wanted and i had full support for my gdmi when i went to columbia which again is very rare um <laughs> need to take your guide dog to South America. She was 100% on board, and I am so grateful to her. But there are other people who work within the blindness field and who even work within organizations like guide dogs that will say, Well, no, you haven't learned this route, so you shouldn't be doing it. And I just think it's ridiculous because the only way actually would become more competent travelers is by getting lost yeah. and actually thinking, mm, Well, okay, I don't really know where I am right now okay what are my options and your only options are to sit on the pavement and wait until you die of dehydration or actually go and find your way out and, and i don't know of a blind person personally that sat on the pavement until they've died of dehydration because <laughs> they can get themselves unlost so i think the danger really is minimal it, it it is far more the danger that we're told is out there yes is, is what holds us back. Like, and I still do this. I've traveled all over the world and everyone goes, oh, you must be so confident. And I still will look at going somewhere in my town and go, oh, but I don't <laughs> know where it is. What if I get lost? What if this, what if that? And I'm like, you went to Columbia, what is wrong with you? But mm-hmm. again, it's that mental block and it's that we've got to get past. and this is what i always tell other blind people is i'm like don't wait until you're good enough to go and do it because you'll be waiting for the rest of your life because the truth is none of us are actually good enough to do anything as blind or sighted people like none of us are perfect i mean i i met so many international students out in colombia who were sighted who were like oh god i don't know what i'm doing or who hadn't you know done something before and people who maybe weren't so great at cooking or various different things and they were just trying it and that's seen as okay if you're sighted so it should absolutely be okay if you're blind Mm
0: -hmm. I go back to being looking at things from psychological standpoint of where you look at a baby you never actually see unless that baby has a disability that gives them the inability to walk you never Mm -hmm. see a baby that falls over and gives up and then says I can't do this and you never see a baby like a baby that turns into a human adult crawling because yeah. they gave up. So why, do, why is this l- such low expectations on disabled people, especially blind people, that, well, you haven't learned A, B or C, therefore you can't do it? Well, we learn by trial and error.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that is the most empowering way to learn things and that's what you know when i became a rehabilitation teacher that's how i was taught to teach my students mm-hmm. was through what we call structured discovery which is structure is a key word as is discovery it's not just throwing a blind person out into the middle of a city and going well figure it out when they don't know <laughs> anything because then then you're going to find your student will fail you can't put your student in a kitchen when they've never used a microwave before and go oh i want you to cook I don't know a cottage pie like from scratch because they're not going to know how but the the structure part is building on what they know and the discovery part is going okay well look you know you're in the kitchen you know you've got to find a saucepan where do you think it might be let's look around the kitchen let's open cabinets rather than me going okay the saucepans are in this cabinet and i'll get one for you it's about Mm -hmm. saying to the student Let's me teach you some problem-solving skills and that is such a powerful way to teach Mm. um blindness skills but also just life Life. i feel like everyone should use structured discovery whether they're blind or sighted in their lives because what it's all about it's about exploring and it's about looking at a situation and going okay what do i know what is my existing knowledge what might the next logical step be let's see if it works and if it doesn't work again going back and re-evaluating what didn't work and thinking well i'll try something again and that is so important and unfortunately especially within i know certainly the blind community where many people have been taught to be very passive and to wait for someone to come along and teach them or do it for them and Mm. what i really encourage people to do is look at okay maybe you do need someone to teach you something because none of us can learn everything by ourselves, but how far can you get by yourself?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. From my perspective, I didn't start losing my vision until GCSE level. So I'd I'd lived in a sighted world and doing research and following people like yourself who've gone to these training centres. And as you say, as soon as you have the tools... At your disposal that have been made accessible to you, and then you learn how to use them effectively. It's it's all about that. It's about the placement. It's about how you hold your body, how you where your hands go, how you do A, B, and C. I think for even me, before I lost like all of my vision, if you to say do woodwork, I'd think no (laughs) thanks (laughs) (laughs) because I'd chop my fingers off. But it's mm-hmm. it's yeah I just I find that in itself just why I I guess my question is you've learned so much and um we'll go back to you achieving your qualification in a moment but I'm guessing it completely empowered you to realize that all the struggles you'd had as a young person as a teenager and then in your early years at university that I guess it was societal barriers once again that held you back. It wasn't, it wasn't your blindness. So how, how did that impact you and your mental health?
1: Um, mental health has been really tricky, honestly, and it's something that I've only come to admit recently that my mental health is dreadful. And I've known this for a long time. I mean, really I've known this since I was a child. I think the first time I expressed a desire to commit suicide was when I was around nine years old. And it's fairly heavily documented in school reports and things, which I went recently on a journey through rereading, mm-hmm. which I found actually extremely important and reassuring to know. Funnily enough, that it isn't all in my head; that it that it was there. That you know, this stuff is written down, therefore it happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that screams of insecurity in in my own perception for sure. Um, but. I think that it's very difficult there's definitely a perception that mental health and blindness go or poor mental health and blindness go hand in hand and I think they possibly do but I don't think they have to and I think that's where I differ from a lot of the um current thinking on it is that mm-hmm. you know people say well of course blind people are going to have poor mental health and I say well no they're not the mental health isn't bad because we're blind it's bad because we're marginalized in society and you know, actually, if we weren't, yeah, if we weren't, then I don't know that it would be so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the effects have been complicated. I mean, I've definitely gone through cycles of really, really deep depression, and I tend to operate in cycles anyway. So I notice I'll get very, very hyper-focused on a project and be really enthusiastic, and then I just lose all motivation for it. And that's been a struggle just as, as an adult in my life in general. You know Mm -hmm. separate from blindness but in terms of how all this has impacted my mental health I think um oh I think it's helped and made things worse all at once it's it's funny it's like on the one hand I look at it and I go well okay I know I can do anything now and on the other I go oh what if I don't live up to expectations what if I fail what if this what if I'm still a terrible blind person who can't do this and can't do that and I there's so many things at play Mm. that um, I'm working through and I think my perception of what makes a terrible blind person is often fueled by everyone telling me oh you're doing so great you're doing so great when I wasn't so it's like I always worry about actually not doing great in the end and that of course I have to do well because everyone thinks I'm good so if I don't do well I've let everyone down Um, and it's I don't know I don't really have a good answer because it's something that I'm really
0: investigating
1: myself in my own life at the moment
0: mm. i think it's powerful though to talk about it yeah in, in in its multifaceted ways because i i honestly believe that we don't talk about mental health enough and we don't talk about it being almost intrinsically linked with people who live with other disabilities and i see that as Again, not because you're disabled, therefore you must have depression or anxiety. It's actually all the nuances that you realize that ableism plays a part Mm -hmm. in your life, that oppression plays plays a part in your life, that barriers to access and inequality and having no equity are actually the reasons that disabled people suffer with poor mental health, not because Oh, you're blind, or oh, you have an arm missing, or oh, you have hearing loss, therefore automatically you're just going to be miserable, and your life is so so sad and poor and pathetic. It's not that case at all. I have been on a massive mental health journey myself, and I haven't even experienced half of the things you've experienced by um you know finishing a degree and going to different parts of the world and living there, not just visiting and coming home again and so everything you've, you've learned and, and kind of gained in introspection and, and learning along the way as an adult and as a visually impaired person, and as all the independence and confidence you've gained through that, I think is really, I guess it's so important to highlight on this podcast because people don't realize that it's, it's intricate it's not as clear-cut as you have a disability therefore you are sad and and depressed and, and life is rubbish I am the happiest I have ever been in my entire life and I'm totally blind and I've got a lot of physical pain at the moment thanks to coronavirus and not having medication on time and yet I never ever Ever believed that I could live a happy life being totally blind because I thought that if I lost my sight completely well, my life wasn't worth living
1: right and that's so much of the fear isn't it there's so much misconception around disability that that feels poor mental health but it also feels I think a lack of recovery because mm-hmm. you, maybe you go to therapy or you go and seek counseling and the counselor attributes everything to your blindness and well how do you feel about your blind? well it must be so upsetting for you to be blind you know and then you think well what was the point of me coming here because you're basically telling me what the whole world's been telling me that my blindness is tragic and that's not why I'm here I'm here because the world is tragic not because my blindness is you know it's like and I I definitely worry about that I worry about that in terms of my mental health recovery like how do I even seek treatment and support if I'm not convinced the treatment is going to view me as a whole human being and I do think that um discourages people from getting support as well and you know I've always felt a lot of shame about even opening up about this as I said it's only been a recent thing because I've always felt like well people expect me to do well I can't show a sign of weakness and again that is then the perception of mental health we get given by society that you're being weak when you're not you're not being weak at all that's just you can't help a chemical imbalance in your brain as much as you can help any other physical disability. You know, it's, it's, it all has a cause. And I, I think that um, there's just so much misconception around all of it.
0: Hey guys, just jumping in to say, I really hope you enjoyed part one of this two part episode. And I can't wait for you to hear the rest of it next week tune in and if you enjoyed this episode don't forget to share it everywhere follow Holly in the show notes below and of course give me five stars on Apple Podcasts